welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. Hope you guys are doing well. Uh, Pastor Lynn is uh, gone this morning. He's doing ministry somewhere else. And I just want to give a disclaimer real quick that um, uh, from the moment that I told Pastor Lynn that I would, uh, that I would speak this morning in his absence, the attacks began. Um, and it has been that way all week. It has been unrelenting um, from work to family to to time to ability to sleep, um, just an, any number of things. And that tells me one thing. That tells me that the enemy does not want uh, our conversation to take place this morning. There's something in... The message today, and it has nothing to do with John Lewis, I promise you that. There's something in the message today that God has for somebody in this room, hopefully for all of us, that the enemy wants to get in the way of. And in first service, it, 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 I mean, it's been going on today. In first service, the power went out. And right, right in the middle of the worship set, last, last uh, song uh, before before the message, and so uh, it lets me know that we are in the right place. I heard a pastor say one time years ago, "If you wake up in the morning and you don't meet the devil head on at some point in the day, it means you're going in the same direction. So you probably ought to do something different." Um, and buddy, I have met him head on every day this week, multiple times a day. So hopefully something's going right. Um, before, before we get into the message, uh, I do want us to, to pray together. So if you would bow with me and let's pray. Uh, Father, we, um, Lord, we come to you this morning as broken people, people in need of your word. Uh, there's nothing special about the messenger. The, um, the value is in the message. The value is in your word. And so we pray, Lord, this morning as we're gathered together that you would speak to us through your word. And Father, that you would do a work in our lives that only you can do. Uh, We give you all the praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, So we've been going through this series, which is a follow-up. I don't know that I've ever been in a series that was part of a series of series. (laughs) Until now. So we started with this series on reasons to believe the Bible, and we talked about the trustworthiness of Scripture and, and where Scripture came from and how, uh, how uh, uh, it's authoritative and how we, can, uh, how we know it's historically accurate and all of these different things. And uh, then we followed that series up with this series called, So Since the Bible is True... What's our response? And we looked at a lot of different areas, and today we're going to talk about, uh, since the Bible is true, are you prepared to die? 
Well, we've talked about a number of things. Here's a list of items in the series, but we've talked about prayer and we've talked about Bible study and we've talked about evangelism and marriage and a number of things. And we've got more to go, but, but today uh, we are talking about death. And death is not necessarily a fun topic. Nobody really sits around going, oh, let's dream about death and, um, and all that it's uh, that's involved with that. But that's not, that's not a, a pleasant thought. But today we're going to have to talk about it. And it's important that we do. Um, and uh, before we do, I want to tell you a little story. When I was in high school, I want to tell you a story about three of my friends. Um, when I was in high school, uh, um, there was a young man named David who around the age of 15, uh, he, he um, discovered he had cancer. And David eventually lost his life to cancer. Um, he, he battled it for several years. Uh, he went through all kinds of treatment. And David spent a lot of time being very, very sick and surrounded by his best friends. But by the time, because of the length of time that he battled this, by the time he passed away, uh, everybody claimed David as their best friend. Uh, it was just, it impacted our entire school to the point that uh, the school system closed the high school for the day, uh, the day of his funeral, because they knew no one would be there. Um, so the teachers, the, the, um, the faculty, the administration, the students, all of them were gathered together in a church in the community to celebrate David's life. Now, during the time uh, that he was sick, he had time to, uh, to get, get his life right with the Lord. He had time to, um, he had time to, to think about you know, what his life meant and uh, what he was supposed to do with his sickness. And, um, uh, you know, there were a lot of people that traveled in and out of his home. I remember going to his home and uh, his parents just had, um, uh, just projected a, a, an incredibly strong faith during that time. And it was, um, it was, it was quite impressive. Now, David and I knew each other from the time we were in preschool. Um, another individual that was in preschool with us was a young lady named Farah. Now, um, Farah and David, I had known, known each other for a long time. And then, uh, later on in school, uh, there was another guy named Jamie that was a friend of ours as well. And, and, uh, let's fast forward a year or two after David's death, uh, to, um, graduation, our graduation night. Graduation night, there was a big party down at the lake, and um, uh, you know everybody in the class was invited. And as you can imagine, what happens at a graduation party? It was a it was a pretty rowdy party, and uh, I didn't go. I had given my life to Christ already, and I had um, uh, shut the door on things like that. But uh, Jamie and Farah were at this party. At some point in the evening, they had been drinking a lot. Um, if you, uh, anybody who knew Jamie knew that he was a pretty rowdy fella. Uh, he was a daredevil, and nothing scared him. And uh, they had been drinking a good bit. I got into a car with another individual, and Jamie was driving. And uh, the road around the lake, uh, there's only one road that goes around it. And there, um, to get anywhere, you had to go on the road. The road's uh, kind of curvy, and, and it's... Um, it's a 35-mile-an-hour road, if I remember correctly. Uh, Jamie was flying down the road close to 70 miles an hour. And uh, 
lost control of the car, tried to miss another car, and ended up hitting a tree. And all three of them were killed instantly. Now, I mention these two stories because David had the opportunity to make changes. He knew what was coming for him. He didn't know when, but he knew it was coming. Jamie and Farah didn't have any clue. And the truth is, none of us really have any idea. We don't know what's going to happen in the next five minutes, the next five days, the next five years. We really don't know. And our time could be up at any moment. When the Lord decides that it's time, it's time. Uh, Almost four years ago, I was on my way to church on a Sunday morning, and I got hit head-on by a drunk driver. Totaled my truck. And I walked away from that accident with an injured hand. And that was it. No broken bones. Hyperextension of my right thumb. I was very, very blessed. But the story could very well have been different for me that day. We never know. We never know. I will tell you this, though. That morning, the interesting thing, that, as, I, as I think back, to that day, one of the things that's really interesting to me is I remember in the shower that morning uh, thinking about something I had heard um, another preacher say at some point wherein he said, uh, if you're in the center of God's will, the devil cannot take you out until God's done with you. So if, in other words, and he was talking about trusting the Lord and being faithful and obedient, doing what God told you to do and understanding that if you're in God's will, if God's not done, you aren't going anywhere. Nothing's going to touch you. And if you, and if anything happens to you while you're doing God's will, then that was part of God's will. And you don't have to understand why you just know that it is. And you can trust in that. And I was thinking about that that morning in the shower. And then I head down the road to go to church like I do every Sunday and didn't happen. And so my story could have been very different. The point for all of us is we don't know what's coming. And so we need to ask this question, are we prepared to die? In order to do that, we need to talk about what death is. Now, so according to dictionary.com, death is the end of life, the total and permanent cessation of all the vital functions of an organism. That's a nice scholastic answer, right? <clears throat> we tend to think of death as the opposite of what? Life. We tend to think of dark as the opposite of light. We tend to think of lie as the opposite of truth. We tend to think of wickedness as the opposite of holiness or righteousness. I want you to think differently about this. Because I think that we get our theology really messed up sometimes unknowingly because we think of words as opposites that aren't opposites. Can somebody tell me what darkness is? Ah, see, darkness itself is nothing. There's no such thing as darkness. Darkness is a word that's used to describe the absence of something. Not the presence. You can't call it. It's not the presence of darkness. It's the absence of light. In a similar way, lie is the absence of truth. Wickedness is the absence of righteousness. You understand what we're saying here? Death then is the absence of 
life. It's not the opposite. It's the absence of. And so we need to define life and death correctly. If we understand it as opposite, this is really, uh, this, Jake Hall and I talk about stuff like this a lot, um, but this really revolutionized my thinking to, to think of these terms as the absence of something rather than the presence of something. Because then, you ever heard people talk about, well, God can't lie? Is there anything God can't do? Well, God can't tell a lie. And then, and then in college, you hear uh, these philosophy professors and stuff, as I went through college, they'd say, well, if you say that God can't lie, you're saying there's something God can't do. And if there's something God can't do, he's not all-powerful. If he's not all-powerful, he's not really the God you believe in. Anybody ever heard that argument? Okay? So here's what I want to say to you. If anybody comes to you with that argument, this is what you need to say to them. It's not that God can't lie. The Bible says he is light. He is life. He is righteousness, and he is truth. And so, even if something doesn't exist, the moment he says it, it is. That's what we see in the book of Genesis. How did God create everything that exists? He spoke it. It didn't exist before. It wasn't true before, but once he said it, it became true. Because he is truth, and whatever he speaks is. That's very different than saying God can't lie. Do you understand the semantics? And I think it's very important for our theology that we look at things in that context. And so therefore, when we talk about righteousness and wickedness, well, wickedness is the absence of God, the absence of righteousness, and darkness is the absence of God, the absence of light, and lie is the absence of truth, the absence of God, and, and life or death, rather, is the absence of life. So what is life? Life has two parts, according to the Scripture. What we see is that God created us with a soul, or as a soul. And we have, we have a, and we can get into, some people uh, believe in a trichotomy of humanity, and some people believe in a dichotomy of humanity. For, for all practical purposes, we won't get into the deep theology of it. But we're just going to consider soul, spirit, the same thing for right now, rather than splitting hairs. Just understand this. The soul has a beginning. You haven't always existed. There was a point when God created you. He created your soul. You have a, your soul has a beginning, but no end. He also gives you a body or flesh. The Bible talks about the flesh. The flesh has a beginning and an end. And so when we talk about death, what we're talking about typically is the ending or the absence of life in our flesh, our body. So, if the soul doesn't die, then what happens when we die is the next question that comes to mind. What happens... <laughs> you looking it up on Siri? Awesome. Uh, see if Siri knows the answer to that. What happens when we die? Find out. Let me know. Um, People have a lot of different theories. There are a lot of different theories that have evolved over the years. 
And these are just a few, but they kind of encapsulate the majority of, of views. There's all kinds of different slants on it. But the first one is purgatory. And purgatory comes out of a Catholic doctrine that basically says if you, if you haven't... Uh, um, uh, and I may not define it exactly the way, the way they would with their theology, but the basic idea is that when you die, you may not be quite good enough yet to get into heaven. And so you go to this place where you can make penance for your, for your sins so, until you are good enough to get in there. And uh, a, a holding place. And it's like, uh, it's like when you technically, for those of you that are in school, when you technically haven't been present for school in enough hours to get credit for the class, but you've done all the work, right? You go and you make up time. <laughs> it's kind of the same concept, all right? Um, and uh, so that's one idea. Another idea is the idea of eternal sleep. A lot of different people, uh, a lot of different views uh, come down to this idea that basically when you, when, you, when you die, you just go into this eternal rest that you you just you're not really conscious or aware of anything you you just like going to sleep and and that's it you're just not aware um and then some people teach reincarnation there's a lot of different views on reincarnation reincarnation is the idea that when you die in this life that you'll come back again in some other form as another person or as an animal and, and the basic idea, regardless of which, which version of reincarnation it is, the basic idea is that you are trying to improve yourself every go-round. You get a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better, hopefully, and if you do worse, then you go backwards. Maybe you come back as a dog or something, I don't know. And, and you, uh, but you're trying to achieve some level of goodness or enlightenment or spirituality so that you enter into some kind of heaven-like state or, or spiritual nirvana or something like that. So there's lots of different variations, but that's the basic idea. And then, as a friend of mine growing up, his dad used to say, nothing happens when you die. When you die, you're just worm food. That's it. You go to the ground, and you decay, and you're done. And the natural end of that kind of logic... Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. The natural end of that kind of logic to say that when, when you die, it's done. You're worm food. There's nothing left. If you, follow that, if you follow that belief to its natural conclusion, the purpose of life is whatever you decide it is. In that view, the purpose of life is whatever you make of it. So if you think your life is about this, then... That's what your life is about. It has nothing to do with anybody else. It has nothing to do with God. It has nothing to do with the Bible. It's whatever you say, whatever you decide, whatever you think or feel. And so these are some of the basic concepts of what happens when you, after the body dies. Well, what does the Bible say about it, though? The Bible says in uh, Hebrews 9, it says, Each person is destined to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So we're starting the series, or start, we started this series with, with the premise, since the Bible is true, because we kind of established that the Bible is true with the previous series. So since the Bible is true, what does the Bible say? And it says that you're destined to die once, and after that comes the judgment. And we, we talked about that a while ago. The soul doesn't die, but the body does. That's that you die once, but your soul continues. So, 
if that's the case, what is the judgment that we're talking about? If we look at um, Matthew 25, if we look at Matthew 25, the uh, parable of the, it's commonly referred to as the parable of the sheep and the goats. Jesus says, but when the Son of Man comes in His glory, who's the Son of Man? Jesus. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit upon His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered in His presence and He will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll place the sheep on His right hand and the goats on His left hand. And then the King will say to those on His right, Come to me, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared to you, prepared for you from the creation of the world. And then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. The scripture tells us that when we die, that then we get judged. And when we're judged... We're sentenced to one of two fates. We have the kingdom of God, heaven, and we have the place of eternal fire, hell. Now, oftentimes I've heard pastors say things like, well, we don't, we don't talk about hell at our church because we, we focus on the words of Jesus and we don't think people come into church to get beat up and get told how bad they are because we we believe God loves everybody. I agree, God loves everybody. But if they want to focus on the words of Jesus, they need to read them. See, Jesus talks more about hell than all of the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament teachers, the apostles, all put together. Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else in Scripture. And if Jesus finds it that important that he would talk about it, then we need to pay attention to it. And every time I see Jesus reference hell, I've heard people say things like, well, hell is hell because God's not there. And if you had to be somewhere where God wasn't for all eternity, that would be hell. Well, there's a lot of people living this life that don't want anything to do with God, and to them, that's not a bad idea. They don't want to talk about the punishment and the torment. They don't want to be viewed in a certain light. But if we're going to be honest intellectually and honest with, with, with people that we care about, hopefully, we have to talk about it. Because Jesus, every time he describes hell, he describes it as a place of torment and fire. That's significant. So... If the Bible says that it's appointed to us once to die, and then the judgment, and then one of two destinations, the question that follows is, well, how do we prepare for that? If we're supposed to prepare for death, how do we do it? We're going to look, I want to look at a few questions that you might want to ask. In light of that. And understand this morning, if you have been in church for any length of time, if you're a believer, um, this should be old hat to you, this, this, whole, this whole discussion. 
It should be something you're familiar with. But I have found that there are times when people are in church all their lives, and, they, and it's not that it's never been said, but they, they never get it. And, and I've heard people give testimony before of when they got saved, and they say, well, I, I grew up in church, and I was at church every Sunday for X number of years, and I, nobody ever told me how to get saved. Well, they, maybe they didn't, maybe they did, I'm not sure, but, but sometimes we just don't hear it. Sometimes we're not ready for it. Sometimes we're not willing to listen. And so maybe this morning somebody in here has been in church for a long time and you need to hear this. Or maybe you need to learn how to share uh, the gospel with somebody that you care about that, that doesn't know God, that doesn't know Christ. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've, you've never been here and you don't know Christ and you don't know what we're talking about. I mean, this is a foundational teaching. This is why the church exists. That's what we're talking about today. So we're going to ask a few questions. First of all, if we're going to be judged, the picture in Scripture is is a judge in a courtroom. And we have a lot of law enforcement folks in here. You guys understand the court system. You know how this works, right? So the first question is, why are we on trial? I mean, what did I do? What, why, why do I have to go to court? What laws have we broken? What's the standard that the judge is going to use to determine our sentence? Those are important questions. And is there a way to know before the trial what the judge's ruling is going to be? Because if there is, I might might want to be prepared for that. So those are the questions that we're going to look at. The answers to all those questions are found in in the gospel. And we're going to look at what I call a four-point gospel this morning, and the reason that we're going to look at four points is, is uh, we live in a post-Christian culture today. It used to be that when you would share the gospel with someone, the, the the story of faith in Christ, you were dealing with people that had some background or context for what the Bible taught, or what the church believed, or what Easter was about. Those sorts of things. But we live in a culture now that before you can talk about, hey, you know what God did for you so you don't have to go to hell? Well, first of all, we got to know, well, what God do they believe in? Or do they believe in God at all? What's their worldview? What's their context? I mean, some people have never stepped foot in a church and they don't have the first idea. And so what we need to do is start at the beginning. Talk about a Four-point gospel. I may have a short in this cable or something. It keeps going out. That's okay. I can talk loud. Um, We're going to talk about first the creation, and then the fall, and then redemption, and restoration. Those four points are the whole gospel. All right? So let's start with creation. When we talk about creation, oftentimes people use use a term that uh, references the creation without even knowing it. There's a lot of people who, who don't even believe in God. Scientists, teachers, average people that use this word. And the word is universe. And universe comes from two parts. You have the prefix uni, which means single or one. And you have the root word verse, which means spoken word. And so anytime somebody talks about the known universe, what they're really saying is what we know about all that God created in a single spoken 
word. So they, they acknowledge God as creator. They acknowledge all of creation as his handiwork. Anybody, anybody else find that uh, interesting? Anybody else? Does it, does it give you chills? I, I, I mean, when I think about that, it blows my mind. That for all these years, I'm sitting in class with people who don't believe in God uh, um, would teach me about the universe and all the time what they're doing is declaring God is creator. And they don't even realize it. That's funny. I'm going to take it a step further though. In music, we talk about the word verse and we usually refer to it as a, uh, like a whole section of a song. But that, the, the real word that should be used for that is stanza. Verse actually means a single line. Uh, let's pull up that other definition real quick. Dictionary.com says that a verse means a succession of metrical feet written, printed, or orally composed as one line. One of the lines of a poem. So we hear verse used when we talk about scripture. We hear verse used when we talk about music. We hear verse used when we talk about poetry, um, Shakespeare, and all kinds of other stuff, right? Verse has a context. The term verse has a context that includes rhythm. That's what metrical feet, that's referring to rhythm. And to make a poem into a song, you have to add melody, notes. As a musician, I find this really interesting because here we have this word verse that refers to poetry and music. And one of the things I can tell you about the Hebrew culture is that when they quote scripture, when they pray prayers, when they memorize scripture, they sing it. That's their tradition. And at our home, we usually, uh, we didn't do it this year, but usually we, we have a Passover Seder in our home. And uh, the Passover Seder is this big feast that the, that, um, the Jews uh, celebrate, uh, remembering how uh, God delivered their people from the land of Egypt under Pharaoh's, um, under Pharaoh's rule and his cruelty. And uh, Moses and the Red Sea and that whole story. And they had this big feast. And everything in, the, everything in the ceremony is symbolic. But there are these prayers of blessing that are sung. And, and so there's this prayer that keeps coming up. And, and, and you sing, Baruch Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam Borei Pri Hagafen. Amen. And that's the prayer. That's the blessing. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, creator of the universe, who brings forth fruit from the vine. And then they have a toast, and they drink a glass of wine. Now, we use grape juice. Don't worry, Baptists. We use grape juice. And um, that's, the, that's, the, but that's the blessing, and that's what they do. And when they quote Scripture, and they, or read Scripture, they'll sing it. Well, traditionally, the Jewish people, many Jewish uh, rabbis and scholars teach and believe that when God created everything in Genesis, He didn't just speak, He sang. And so when we, when we hear the term universe, it's a single line in the song that God is singing. It's the first line is the creation. Your life is a part of that song. Isn't that cool? That's the God we're talking about. As a matter of fact, there's a verse, a, a, 
a word that's used in the Greek in the New Testament, poema. It's the same idea that I, your life is God's poem, is basically what it says. It's his, his workmanship. The word is poema. It means poem. Same idea. Your life is part of his song, this work he's doing. So the creation uh, declares God's glory. What did God do at the creation besides sing or speak everything into existence? Well, he created Adam and Eve, and he created a perfect world, and he created all things, and he said they were good. And, you know, a lot of times we we think that... um, Work is part of the curse. Work is not part of the curse. God actually created Adam to take care of the garden. He told him that. Your job is to name the animals and take care of the garden. That was his job before the fall. And part of the curse was the the toil and the trials that would go along with work. The difficulty of work. The hardship of work. But work was part of God's perfect plan for man. Um, God created a perfect world, but then something happened. And that's where we get to point two, the fall. And the fall is all about uh, how God created these perfect people, but part of his perfect creation was he gave us free will. He gave us a choice, the ability to make decisions for ourselves. And he gave them one rule, and they chose poorly. They disobeyed. And as a result, this is what the Bible says about that in Romans 5. It says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world, and Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. This is when death was introduced. Remember, God created all things perfectly, and we said earlier, the soul doesn't die. That's because God created us to live eternally in relationship with Him. He didn't intend for Adam and Eve to be potential uh, occupants of hell. He created that for Satan and the demons. We read that earlier. But because Adam and Eve disobeyed, sin entered the world, death entered the world, and the consequences of sin is death. And so that's the fall. And the only way to escape this is to be, is to be able to, to meet the requirements to be acceptable for heaven. And what's the, what's the requirement? Well, he created them perfect in the beginning, right? And they were safe then. Let's look at what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. He says, you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And God's standard is perfection, holiness, That's important for us to understand. So now if we go back to our other questions that we asked at the beginning, we say, why are we on trial? Well, we're on trial because we've broken God's laws. Adam and Eve disobeyed, and we've all disobeyed. How do I know we've disobeyed? Well, because Jesus explained the law to us. See, the Pharisees used to think that the keeping of the law had to do with the outward. I want to challenge you with this thought. We're not sinners... Because we committed sinful acts. The correct understanding, just like we talked about, the, not opposites, but, but absences. The correct understanding is not that we're sinners because we committed sinful acts, but we commit sinful acts because we're sinners. 
We start as sinners. We are sinners because death entered through Adam. We can't help it. It's there. It's who we are. And because we are, sinful acts follow from that. And so the Pharisees thought, well, you know, live righteously, follow all the laws, do all the stuff, and be perfect, right? But the problem was they were looking at the outside, and here's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard it said not to commit adultery, but I say if you've had a lustful thought, you've already committed the act in your mind. There's no difference. You're just as guilty. And then he says, you've heard it said don't commit murder, but I say if you hate your brother without cause, you've already committed murder in your heart. There's no difference. You're guilty. And he called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. And what he's saying is, it doesn't matter what you do. You are who you are because all people are fallen. And until you humble yourself to recognize that you're a sinner, you can't understand the gospel. The gospel means good news, right? That's the literal meaning of the word gospel. The problem is because we live in a post-Christian culture, you can't start with somebody and say, let me tell you the good news. Hey brother, good news, I paid your million dollar fine. You're free. And he's looking at me going, I didn't know anybody a million dollars. What are you talking about? He might go, okay, thank you and walk away. And it means nothing to him because He doesn't know any bad news. But if I come to him and say, hey, Aaron Barlow's over there. He's got a warrant for your arrest, and he's got a long list of crimes you've committed. Buddy, I'm telling you right now, they are looking for you, but I want to let you know. I paid your bond. You're good. Now it's good news. Because first, he knew the bad news. And the problem is, we live in a culture that doesn't understand that they're fallen and sinful and deserving of, of death and hell. And so we got to start with the creation and the fall to understand where all that comes from. And then we can move on to the idea of redemption. And here's the redemption part. And this is the part we like to talk about. We talk about this all the time. We sing about it all the time. But the redemption part in Romans 5, 8 says, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. He didn't... He didn't tell us to clean up. He didn't tell us to get perfect and then he'd forgive us. It's, it's more along the lines of this and this is how we have to understand it. Mercy is that we don't get what we do deserve. And grace is that we get things we don't deserve. And so God gave us mercy and grace through his son on the cross when we sinful people who do deserve hell because we violated God's laws. We do deserve hell. He gave us mercy and said, you don't have to go to hell. And then he gave us grace and said, as a matter of fact, you get to go to heaven. The idea of redemption is is the idea of purchase. You read on coupons, it'll say you can redeem this at any, you know, name your fast food chain. They get them, you get them all the time in the mailbox, Right? Arby's, Taco Bell, KFC, whatever. But it'll say, you know, you can redeem at any location in such and such county or whatever. It's the idea that coupon has value at that location. It costs you nothing, but it costs the owner of the store something. 
And see, salvation is like that. The word redemption is used because it costs us nothing, and it costs him everything. And so God gives us an offer of redemption. But guess what? You can get those coupons in the mail, and they mean nothing to you if you never use them. In the same way, I can offer you a gift and say, I paid a high price for this gift. It's just a pen, but pretend it's valuable, right? I paid a high price for this. Mike, this is yours. It is a free gift. If Mike walks away and doesn't take it, it's not his. Such is the offer of salvation. Jesus says, I paid a high price for you. This is your free gift. The saddest thing, the most tragic thing that happens in this world is when people get offered that gift and they walk away and refuse it. And we have a response that we're responsible for in that process of redemption. And then the fourth part of the gospel is restoration. We said that in the creation that God created everything perfect and he had a plan and man was to live in right relationship with God for all eternity. And then the fall came and death entered the world and sin entered the world and everything was broken and messed up and God in his sovereignty and in his great kindness sent his son to die on the cross for us so that we might be redeemed from hell. And then he makes this promise in Revelation and in other places in Scripture as well that he's going to return to restore what is broken and put it back to perfection. Revelation 1.7, Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him even those who pierced him. And all nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. And amen, amen means let it be. There's another passage in Revelation that says, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And that's the same sentiment here. That God has promised, Jesus has promised, he's returning one day to restore all things to right relationship with God. Revelation tells us the the lion will lie down with the lamb. There will be no more death, no more violence, no more fighting, no more sin, no more wickedness. Because what is wickedness? The absence of God. And if the righteousness of God is present with us, there's no wickedness. And he will be with us for all eternity. We'll be with him for all eternity. That's his promise. So that's the four-part gospel. This is important for us to understand because oftentimes we talk about salvation and we talk about it as a prayer. You come forward and say this prayer and God will forgive you and your life will be good. We give, a, we give people a Mickey Mouse gospel, right? Or, or a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Oh, come to Jesus and all your debts will disappear and miraculously you'll have all kinds of money. You don't have to do anything. Drives me crazy. No, it's not working for me. That's why I work three jobs, brother. Um, and, uh, and, you know, but, but we tell people, come to Jesus, your life will be so much better. He give you peace and joy and happiness. and That's not the promise of God. The promise of God is this. In this world, you will have trouble. 
But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world, and I have promised I am returning one day to set it all right. And you'll be there if you'll, if you'll trust in me. I want to share with you a video. We're going to go over a little bit today. But I really believe that this is important, and it's part of what God has put us here for. There's a video that I want to share with you. I met this gentleman last weekend. His name is Steve Scheibner. Steve is an airline pilot. He was in the military, flew for the Navy, and he was flying for American Airlines, and he was the pilot that was scheduled to fly Flight 11, the first plane that went into the World Trade Center on 9-11. This video is about 15 minutes long, and just want to warn you, uh, there's nothing graphic, but it is emotional. And so if you have anything, anybody in here you think is going to be disturbed, um, do whatever you need to do. But we're going to watch this video of Steve and his testimony, and then we'll finish this up. Let's play the video. On an emotional level, at first, it didn't really sink in. And I think a lot of people that are close to an event like that, you know, you're kind of in a sort of a dream state for a little bit. You're kind of trying to figure out what happened. And and uh, I finally started to piece it all together uh, later on that evening. And when he finally did get a hold of me, he, he just kept saying, it wasn't me. Don't worry, it wasn't me. Uh, well, I've been with American Airlines since 1991, so we're coming up on my 20th anniversary with American. Uh, I've been a pilot a little bit longer than that. I was first uh, employed by the Navy. I flew P-3s uh, out of Brunswick, Maine, and uh, I was on active duty for eight years. I got about 3,500 hours of P-3 uh, time in those eight years, uh, and then I got hired by American Airlines, and currently I fly the Boeing 757 and 767 airplanes. It's interesting because you don't know what's going to happen September 11th when you're living September 10th. And I just remember September 10th because September in New England is beautiful. It's not quite fall, but it's it's cooler than it would be other places. And I'd taken them to the library, and I was sitting outside drinking a coffee while they were in the library. And for the first time, really thanking the Lord because I felt safe. I thought, wow, we're all here, and it's safe and what in the world could ever happen in Georgetown, Maine. September 10th is a date that means, you know, a great deal to me because uh, I did what I normally do on uh, September 10th, the day before I become available to go flying. And my flying is in blocks of days of availability. So I was available to go flying on September 11th. So at about three o'clock in the afternoon on September 10th, I sat down at the computer and I, I logged in like I normally do. And to check to see if there was any unassigned flying for the next day. And sure enough, there was one trip that was available on September 11th. It was American Airlines uh, Flight 11 out of Boston's Logan Airport uh, to Los Angeles. It was a two-day trip, got back on the second day, 
left, I think, at about, I don't know, 7.40, 7.45 in the morning, something around that time frame. Uh, and I looked at it, and there was no uh, pilot assigned to it yet. So the next thing that, I, that what I do is I go and check and see uh, if there's any reserve pilots available. Now, I know I'm available, but there might be some other guys available. And it just so happened on September 11th, 2001, uh, there was only one guy available to go flying on that day, and that was me. So I've been through this drill a lot of times over the years. Uh, I went and I, I, in fact, I told my wife, I said, um, I said, I'm going to Los Angeles tomorrow. Uh, I went out to the car and I opened up the trunk and I got my, my uh, dirty luggage out of the trunk and I threw it in the wash machine and I packed my bags with the new clean stuff and took it back out to the car and I said, I'm going to L.A. And at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, in fact, in those days, uh, what's called crew scheduling at American Airlines would actually assign my name to that trip. I ironed his shirt, which I always do, and put his epaulets on his shoulder and found the ID and, you know, made sure he had everything packed he needed. And we just prepare. When you're a, um, when you're a military family, you prepare in a certain way. When you're an airline family, it's the same thing. There's just a routine and kind of a checklist you go through to prepare for Dad to leave on a trip. The, the final assignment comes via the phone call. So they make you know, positive contact communication with you. It's not just in the computer. They'll call and they'll say, hey, want to let you know you've been assigned a trip. Now, I, I might know that already by looking into the computer. I could already see that. But uh, a real person will call you and say, Scheibner, it's now your trip. And now at that point, once you have that phone conversation, even a, if a line pilot wants to, they can't bump you off that trip. So they've only got a 30-minute window of opportunity. Once that phone call gets made, it's a done deal. I waited for the phone call. And the phone never rang, um, which is not completely unusual. It's not the norm, but it's not completely out of the question either. In fact, I didn't even think about it for a while. Uh, it was later on that evening. I thought, hey, you know, they never assigned that trip to me. And then I really didn't give it another thought because, well, what that means is I still get paid, but I've got, I've got tomorrow off. I'm still available to go flying, but you know, they never finalized an assignment. So I guess I can, you know, brush off my ambitions to do something else that day. What was taking place, uh, unaware, I was unaware of, uh, was the fact that a, a fellow by the name of Tom McGinnis, uh, who was one of those line-holding pilots, a little bit senior to me, uh, Tom was celebrating his birthday on September 10th with his wife and his children. And Tom did what I did that afternoon, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He went over to the computer, and he logged in, and he looked, and he saw that that flight was open, but my name had been penciled in. And he knew he was in, still in that 30-minute window of opportunity. Uh, so Tom called down to American Airlines and said, hey, you know, I just want to check with you. Am I legal to take this trip? In other words, can I bump Scheibner off that trip? And uh, they did what they do with the computer down there, and they got back to him and said, yep, you're, you're legal for that trip, but you've got to give us a call back in the next, you know, 20 minutes, uh, or else we're going to finalize the assignment. I assume that Tom had some sort of conversation with his wife, uh, and he called back. He called American Airlines, and he said, yeah, I'll take that trip. So at that moment, they erased my name off the trip. They assigned it to Tom. I didn't know any different because they never called. And uh, Tom showed up for work that day on September 11th. As you recall, on the East Coast, it was a beautiful day that day. They pushed back off the gate on time, and uh, they took off on time, and they, uh, Tom was actually flying. It was his leg to Los Angeles that day. And... Uh, they flew up to about 23,000 feet, and Tom engaged the autopilot to take him the rest of the way to Los Angeles. And at that moment, uh, all hell broke loose on the airplane. 
I mean, there's not another way to, to express it. The concert's not answering. Somebody's stabbed in business class. And um, I think there's mates that we can't breathe. I, I don't know. I think we're getting hijacked. Which flight do you want? Flight 12. Flight 12. Okay. So we're on flight 11 right now. This is flight 11. It's flight 11. I'm sorry, Nitty. Boston to Los Angeles. Yes. And what seat are you in? Ma'am, are you there? Yes. What 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 seat are you in? Ma'am, what seat are you in? We just left Boston. We're up in the air. I know. We're supposed to go to L.A. and the concert's not answering their phone. Okay, but what seat point. are you sitting in? What's the number of your seat? Okay, I'm in my jump seat right now. Okay. At 3R. Okay, you're the flight attendant? Our number one has been stabbed, and our five has been stabbed. Can anybody get up to the cockpit? Can anybody get up to the cockpit? Okay, we can't even get into the cockpit. We don't know who's up there. Is anybody still there? Yes, we're still here. Okay. I'm staying on the line as well. Okay. What's going on, honey? Okay, the aircraft is erratic again. Falling very erratic. Betty, talk to me. Betty, are you there? Betty? have a TV on. I didn't have a radio on. We were just doing our schoolwork. And um, and pretty soon the the head contractor called me. Um, his guys had called him because they realized that Steve wasn't home. And he called me and said, you know, where is Steve today? And I said, well, he's in at the Navy. He had gone to work for the Navy that day since he didn't get an airline trip. And it, the problem with the contractors was they were scared. They thought he had been on that flight and they were going to be dealing with this distraught woman who had just lost her husband. Um, It really started to come home to me, the emotional gravity of what happened when my cell phone started to ring. But uh, a secretary at a school that I used to attend uh, looked up my cell phone number, and she was the first person to call. And uh, I answered the phone, and uh, Evie was on the end of the phone, and she heard my voice, and she started crying. And uh, when she started crying, I, I started crying. And uh, so uh, she was just happy to hear my voice. And it wasn't two minutes after I got off with her that somebody else called, friends of ours from down in Texas. I thought, you know, I I need to get ahead of this and make some phone calls. So I I called home and I I called to different places. I still didn't realize that that was a flight that I was supposed to be on. You know, I'm watching it on TV like everybody else. And it didn't click with me. I knew the flight number and everything. It still didn't click with me. When it finally clicked with me was later on that evening. I thought, you know, I wonder who was on that flight. And I thought, well, maybe I can go find out the names because the media wasn't going to give you the names for a few days. I thought maybe there's a way through the login process at American to find out the names. And so I did. I did what I did the day before on September 10th. I logged in. And when the screen came up in front of me, it looked exactly like it did the day before when it had that trip and it had my name penciled in. Except this time, it had this trip sequence. My name wasn't there, and it said these three words, sequence failed continuity. That's code 
at the airlines for the trip never made it to its destination. Wow, what an understatement. <laughs> Sequence failed continuity. And at that moment, when I got that visual look at the screen, I was overwhelmed. It, uh, I, I said, you know what? I packed my bags to go on that trip. And then I was even more curious who had bumped me. But uh, the words can't describe that moment of, of realizing that you should have been someplace. You asked me about guilt a little while ago. Yeah, you do have a twinge of guilt. 20 years ago, I wrote a life objective. And my life objective goes like this. It's to seek, trust, and glorify God through humble service and continual prayer to raise up qualified disciples as quickly as possible so that someday I might hear God say, well done, my good and faithful servant. The events of September 11th took that life objective that I already had and it intensified it for me. The fire just keeps getting hotter as I get older. But someday I want to stand in the Lord's presence and I want him to say, well done. I would hate to get in God's presence and have him say, oh yeah, Scheibner, I see your name's down here. Well, you know, have a seat. I need to hear the Lord say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what's on my plate and that's what's driving me these days. Um, why does God take one and, and leave another? It's not because um, I'm a better person or God wanted to do more with me than he wanted to with Tom. I, I think in God's providence, uh, that's obviously his choice. What has stuck with me all these years is the fact that he did leave me behind, is that I need to act like I'm living on borrowed time, because I am. I can look and see my smoke and hole, and it was on national TV. And I saw where I should have died, but I didn't. And now there's an obligation that comes with that. I've got to live my days with a sense of urgency. I have to make sure I get the most out of them, and not the most for me. That's, I think we, we live in a world where everybody's kind of out to get the most for them. This is not about me. This is about the distinct privilege I've been given to know that somebody died in my place. What I know is that somebody died in my place not once, but twice. That's where God comes into the whole thing for me. See, Tom sat in a seat that I was qualified to sit in. And, and by all rights, I, that was my seat that day. I should have been in that seat. In fact, I've sat in the very seat of that airplane that Tom was in. I've flown all of the, the 757s and 767s American Airlines owned. So I know what it's like literally to sit in that seat. But I am still, all these years later, still qualified to sit in that seat. And I could have. But Tom didn't die for my sins. You see, God sent his own son to die for my sins. Jesus Christ was the other one who died in my place, and he hung, and he bled, and he suffered on a cross to pay a price for me that I wasn't qualified to pay. I couldn't have hung on the cross. I didn't have the same qualifications. So one guy sat in a seat that I should have sat in, 
The other hung and bled on a cross. One is far more significant than the other. That's not to trivialize what happened to Tom. It's to elevate um, and glorify what God did for me and for mankind on the cross. Somebody sat in a seat for us. His qualifications far outnumbered and outweighed ours. If God's standard is perfection, none of us can achieve it. That's why we need Him. That's why the gospel is good news, because we don't have to. We're not capable, and we don't have to. We just have to respond to Him in faith and accept what He did. Steve made a, a great comparison for us with those two people that sat in his place. Steve didn't know what was going to happen on September 11th, and neither, neither did Tom McGinnis. And you and I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, or the next five minutes for that matter. I want to share with you a, um, before we give the invitation, I want to share with you a passage that summarizes the gospel. It's in Romans chapter 3, and I'll just tell you the references that I've been using from the New, the New Living Translation. Um, I study using all kinds of translations, but I like reading from the New Living because it puts it in regular, everyday conversational language. And when I'm looking at large portions of Scripture, it helps me to grab the context rather than they get caught up in the specific wording of individual verses. When I read it, I understand it for what the whole thing says, not just a couple of lines. And that's why I like this. Here's a summary of the Gospel from Romans chapter 3. As the Scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one, No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul. They like the stench from an open grave, and their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them, and they don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given. For its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with Him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. 
He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then that we've done anything to be accepted by God? No. Because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. There is only one God and He makes people right with Himself only by faith whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Well then, if we emphasize faith, Does this mean that we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill it. Gospel is very clearly presented there in Romans chapter 3. And I'll tell you this, the Bible tells us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us, for our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In a moment, the band's going to come out and we're going to give an invitation. And um, I want you to know the invitation this morning is for everyone. If you, um, if, you need, if you need to pass from death to life this morning, this is, this is an opportunity for you. Don't, don't miss it because you don't know what's, what's ahead of you. If... Um, if you need to confess and repent of your sin and surrender your life to Christ, you can do that this morning. Believers, if, um, if you need to recommit yourself to the Lord this morning to follow Christ, this time is for you as well. And maybe, maybe you've got a burden for somebody who doesn't know the Lord and maybe you need to pray. Maybe you need to come and commit that to the Lord's hands. This, whatever, whatever God's saying to you, whatever He's doing, this time is for us to respond in kind. Um, if you are in that group this morning that needs to pass from death to life, we're going to put on the screen some bullet points just to show you what you need. This is how you do it. This is how you pass from death to life. First of all, you confess and you turn from your sins. The Bible calls that repentance. It means you change your direction, you go the opposite way. You believe that Christ died to pay the penalty for your sins. You surrender yourself to Him completely. You ask Him to be your boss. He gets to call the shots. You place your faith and trust in Jesus. You ask Him to forgive you and give you a new start. The offer is available to all of us. If you haven't accepted it, you need to consider that this morning. Somebody sat in a seat that you weren't qualified to sit in. Paid a price that you could never pay so that you could get a benefit you'd never deserve. Father, thank you that you love us enough that you would sacrifice all for us. Humble us, Father. 
that each one of us this morning would bow our knee and bow our heart and surrender fully to you. As they sing, you come and deal with whatever God's laid on your heart. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life.